Let's start off this morning by reading a little portion of Scripture from King David. And let's see what, his, what he had said a little bit further. And we'll talk about Psalm 119 just for a couple of minutes. And basically, in Psalm 119, we go to verses 57 to 64. And David here is once again giving what's thoughts on his heart. And what you're doing is you're seeing not only the mind of a king, but you're seeing the mind of an older gentleman who has lived some very incredible years and he still, after all these years, has gives the Lord, he gives the Lord the glory and the credit for his word. We see, in, we see it's actually the Hebrew letter, it's called Cheth, and that is Psalm chapter 119, verses 57 to 64, and we read, Thou art my portion, O Lord, I have said that I would keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. And if you remember correctly, several weeks ago, we went into Psalm 119, the first like 16 verses, and then we transferred over here into other various areas. And this actually seems quite repetitive. But all throughout Psalm 119, with over hundreds, I think it's 150, 170 some verses, I can't remember exactly how many, all throughout that these words pop up in these Hebrew letters, and it's King David basically giving, it's almost like a last will and testament, way before he died, and he's saying throughout his life, no matter what happened, he went back to God's word. So it's very important. Lisey. Amen. Right, right. Well, and that's that's a very good point because when it says that he turned, that it's it's a transitional it's a transitional thought. I thought on my ways, and then when I thought on my ways and my personal intimations, I turned to Thy Word because that was the standard by which to live by. Right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And I think that if, if you if you ingest all the words in Psalm 119, let's just say you stop everything you're doing in your Bible studies and you were at some point, you, you study Psalm 119, and it doesn't take long to read, might be a lot of verses, you will find everything in your life and everything in some form that may have been a real sorrow or a real trial or maybe a victory, and if you plug that into what David is saying, you will gain comfort from that because there's everything. David doesn't hardly miss anything. He speaks here about death. He talks about um, older age. He talks about illness and sicknesses and different events that happen in his life. And all throughout his years, and we could just stand here and discuss all of the things that happened to him. There were so many things from the, the, from the beginning of his life, the victory of picking up the pebbles, going up to Goliath, and he's the one that defeats Goliath. 
to the problems that he had with his brother and then the horrible, toxic relationship with Saul. And then you come back and see later on because, because of the great sin that David had, he comes back and that was one of the most horrifying things that happened to him because he compromised his testimony. He writes all these verses, all these verses, and it's, that's, that's exactly what, 176 verses, every last part of his life going back to the Word of God. And we see that how he calls it out, but he calls, he says, my portion. He says, thou art my portion, the portion of the saints. The psalmist regards this as the treasure of his existence, that the Lord is his portion. It's the portion in his life that, that, that binds and brings everything together here in verse 57. A treasure laid up in heaven and a portion that is binding and eternal. David regards his portion, his portion of the Lord as his whole reward, his felicity his contentment, his blessedness. And most regard the reward of this earth as their portion. David didn't regard the outcome of the portion of the riches of this earth as his first and foremost outline number one of his life. It was the eternal riches of being with his Savior. There are treasures that are laid up here on this earth. A very rich man that walked with Jesus, talked about this specifically in Luke 16, 19. A certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Remember what happened with this man. This is the rich young ruler. What happened to him? Does anybody remember in that story? Teresa? Yeah. Right. What did, the, what, what did Christ say to him? Do you remember? Amen. Sell everything you have, go back, and then come and follow me. And he said, but I have not, I have kept all of thy commandments from my youth. And instead of Christ coming back and saying, you haven't kept my commandments for one minute, he said, he just put him to the test. Sell everything you have and follow me. And the man walked away glibly and walked away very upset. I, I, this, this is a tough one because, I mean, we've, we've actually talked about this years ago in one of the classes, but... It's amazing because I think theologians are actually split right down the middle on what actually happened to the rich young ruler. This was not a parable. This was a real man. Half of them think that he went to heaven and half of them think he went to hell. Some people say that there, the word, I, I, I didn't catch this, but in one of the passages when they spoke about it, there the word that says that the Lord loved him. And in that case, many believe that he actually, the Lord did love him and actually did save him, but was teaching him a lesson. But anyway, the, 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 what we see is the opening of this man's life was basically predicated on the riches of this world. Then we see in Luke chapter 19, verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And that is a very, very stark reminder of what the possibilities are about putting our arms around riches. Riches do not condemn a man to death, having them. We know that Abraham had them. We know that Jacob had them. Jacob was a very wealthy man for a very long time in his life, and King David was. But it's loving every single one of them. I've been studying a little bit about the disciples and the apostles and reading, and, I, and something kind of hit me. 
and when it comes to ministry. And I'm sorry, but uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a real hard time with retirement ministry. There's, I've been reading a lot about that and some different essays and different things about it, about retirement and just taking a certain age and saying, I'm only going to preach to a certain time and I'm going to take a big severance pay and take all this money and I'm quitting. And basically, my point is, is that where, where does the ministry start superseding the want for the comforts of this world? Because when someone retires and leaves, they're basically saying, I don't want the ministry anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. Lisey. Yes. Right. It's becoming a nine-to-fiver instead of a shepherding. And, and, I, and, I, and I do believe that there are some exceptions to the rule. There are health issues. There are sometimes, you know, a pastor may have to take care of a close family member and just has to devote all their time. To, I understand that. And I think that's very important. But when it comes to just saying, I'm going to retire, and, and I've seen this happen, that it could be somebody, some kind of an officer in the church, and the rest of their life they don't do anything anymore. They just kind of give it up. And basically, I think that we need to be very careful with the riches of this world. We need to be very careful at how close we get, because they can, they can just basically take you in and just stop, stop you from really having the joy that you have by serving Christ. And it can happen to any one of us. I'm not saying you're saying it couldn't happen to me or anybody else, but I think that that's been a real, I think, a window into ministry today is that basically you, 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 the demographic is, all right, I'm going to preach so many years, I'm going to go to this church, and at this age I'm retiring, and, I'm going to, and that's going to be it. And then it becomes, as Lisey said, it just becomes like a corporate kind of uh, following. But David confirms here the word of God. That the covenants of God and the presence of God are his portion. And we see in these verses that his assurance is that he knows that the Lord will be merciful unto him. He knows it. What is that one psalm we sing? God be merciful unto me, oh, in thy strength I rest my plea with his abounding grace alone. Isn't that incredible? I think mercy and grace are synonymous. They're very, very close cousins. <laughs> but mercy and grace. And David loves the mercy that the Lord gives him. He knew he had breached the blessing of God by his sins and forfeited the gratitude of God's grace by his transgression. And it's no wonder that David writes all throughout his penitential psalms in Psalm 51.1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Could I ask someone to look up Psalm chapter 130, verses 7 and 8? Someone can look that up and then read it. We see here that David always had a desire for mercy, especially in the day and the culture we live in. We can learn from this. We need to pray for God's mercy. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Whoever has that. Thank you, Nancy. That's vast. That's a very immense and a very profound statement. Because when we see how David here writes also in Psalm 130, that's one of seven penitential psalms, we see that if God has the power to redeem Israel from all their iniquities, you're talking about centuries and millions and millions of people, and that the Lord has the power to look over every one of them, and that He can do that for us. That's an immense amount of power. 
In verse 58, we see that David once again, he confirms the word of God. He said, I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. That's another word for, the, that's another word for God's word that we haven't seen quite yet. We've seen thy words. We have seen commandments. We've seen testimonies. He says, I entreated thy favor. His, the Lord's favor is rooted in his word, and we can't even begin to understand it without reading it. His favor comes from his word. What is his favor? God's favor is to redeem us from evil and to be mercy upon, have mercy upon us. I mean, this morning in the message, we're going to be talking, once again, we're going to be going forward with the objections of Moses. And can you imagine, can you imagine, finally we're going to see towards verses 16 and 17 in Exodus chapter 4, God starts getting angry with Moses. He gets angry. But he gets angry after five objections. You would have thought that the Lord would have been furious after the first objection. But he hangs with him. All throughout the conversation, he hangs with Moses. And he says, okay, you don't think you're worthy to do this? I'll make it happen. You don't think, you can, you don't think that people will understand who I am? I will give you the tools to tell the people what my name is. And then he says, but people, they won't believe me. They will never believe me. How am I going to tell them this? And the Lord says, I will give you the manipulatives and the tools to do it. And we're going to go back and talk about that this morning. He says, I will do that. And then, and then Moses comes back and he finally says, I just can't do this. I can't send someone else. And then the Lord gets angry. Dave. Right. He questioned him, didn't he? <laughs> I can't do this with 300 people. Well, the Lord on one hand is saying, well, I don't need anybody to do it. Gideon's saying, I need 30,000 people to do it. I need a lot of people. He goes, no, you don't. And Gideon says, yes, I do. That's a good point. And the Lord says, I'll tell you what, you go out there and start banging a bunch of tins and a bunch of pitchers and, a, and trumpets, and I'll show you how powerful I am. And he always, it's amazing. Gideon was perfect. Midianites. I don't know if you've ever studied the Midianites or not, but they're pretty brutal people. They, they really were very, very pagan and very... Uh, very much like the Romans with the way that they treated people. They were brutal. That's a good point. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart, David says. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Well, I remember in Psalm 51, David cries out and he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And he says, and in, he says, and sin did my mother conceive me. He goes, but he asked the Lord to be just in his dealing with him. I thought that was incredible to be just. That's something we do need to be careful with because David was so upset about the sin that he committed, he did ask for justice and he did ask for the Lord to expose his heart. He says, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. We see here that David planned we see that he took the time to assess his dilemma and seek God for the cure. He thought of his ways. He thought of his actions and knew that God can see the heart, the internal as well as the external. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that people today really believe that God can see the internal? Well, I mean, I've heard messages, literally, pastors saying that the Lord only looks on the outside. He can only see the external. He, doesn't look, he can't see what's in our hearts. I would, be, I would be utterly lost. I would be totally lost in my faith in any God at all. 
because I would have to say any God, because a God that would know me internally cannot be the true and living God. But if I didn't know the true and living God, and I didn't think that He could see me internally, I would be lost without hope. Because that is where my protection comes from. Knowing that whenever I have a, knowing that my thoughts are wrong, my temptations are there, my intentions are wrong. I know that the Lord can go all the way back into the smallest teeny tiny nut and bolt and fix that. Because He knows internally what's going on. Isn't that what you want when someone works at your house? You want somebody that just knows how, that says they can fix your house but only knows how to do external things and they come in and they mess everything up internally? What about in your car? Don't you want somebody that knows every nut and bolt, especially you get on an airplane, to fly in an airplane? Do you want a mechanic that knows every nut and bolt in that, end, in that engine so you don't go crashing into a mountain or something? That's the God I want, but the one that David's talking about here in this verse, he comes back and he says, he goes, he says, oh, be merciful unto me according to thy word. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. And we see here that he planned, he saw it, and he knew that the Lord knew his everything in his heart as well as on the outside. He knew that the Lord could see that he was getting older, but on the inside that he was torn up over the things that he had done and the people that he affected. He cared about those people. He really did. And it was. A, and can you imagine, you know, I can understand why David hardly ever brings up the word Uriah after it happens. He never brings that word up. I think there are some inferences. But I think he was so torn up over that, that man loved him. And that man came from a pagan culture and he came into Christianity. And the reproach that he brought upon Uriah, he took everything the man had and he did that. And I believe that's woven in a lot of, his, uh, a lot of the pain that he's showing here. We see that he planned. We see, that we, we see here that God can see the heart, internal as well as the external. After Christ turned over the tables in the temple, we read of the malice that he knew was actually in the heart of the Pharisaical Jews. John 2.25 says, And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And then we see his divinity here on this earth. He knew what was in man. He knew exactly what was inside of man's thoughts. We see that if we're talking about a level of keeping in step with the Spirit. Look at what Jesus says regarding the ability of the Father to see even in closed quarter. Can someone look up Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 and read that? I want you to be involved. That would be great. Matthew 6, 6. Someone can look that. There is nothing that God cannot see. David ran to the testimonies of the Lord and he did not waver. He did not waver away from the salvation the Lord had given. Matthew 6 6. Anyone? How, thank you, Jenny. How can he reward thee openly if he can't see what's going on inside of that closet? How? He can see inside of it, in our hearts, what's on our minds exactly. He knows what we're praying, so why not pray? Why? Lose yourself in prayer. You, you, if you get to the lowest ebb and you just something happens out of nowhere, and that's happened a lot this week. Some crazy things have happened. Just go pray, start praying. Don't sit there and start dwelling in sorrows. Don't start thinking about yourself and getting all upset and looking for sympathy. Sit down and pray. Look for sympathy from Christ and sit down and just start praying. 
doesn't have to be some perfect format. doesn't have to be some eloquent oration. Just start praying. And just keep praying until you feel better. You know, sometimes it might take a whole day to do that. It might take hours to do that. And you know, James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, they said his knees looked like a camel's knees because that's what he did. His knees were all shriveled up because he would literally kneel down on the floor and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. That's a good thing to do. You're you're really hurting and, and you just don't know which way to turn. Just sit down and bow your head and don't get up until you're done. Stop everything else. It's a good thing to do. And this is what David was doing. He was Because he was crying out. He was begging the Lord for mercies in the Testament. And he talks about how the Lord got him through over and over and over and over again. And when you see the way that he writes, and you see and you read his beautiful words, go back to Psalm 37. Go back to Psalm 8. You know what? I loved, I loved the fact that I've read Job several times. Because when I read his words, I do believe that David is mimicking Job. I believe he knew all about Job, and I believe that Moses wrote Job. And I believe that David had Moses and Job plugged in intravenously into his veins. And that, because it sounds just like a lot of the words that they wrote. And I think that's a big clue. And you can see that here coming from his heart. We see that he talks about, as we move forward, we were just in verse 60, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. What is he saying here about that? He, he says, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Does that mean as a human being he stopped everything in his life and he just said, okay, today is the day that I'm going to go down the Ten Commandments like the Pharisees and I'm going to keep every one of them perfectly and down to the last letter I am going to have run a race and see how much better I can keep the commandments than everybody else. See, people read it like that. They read it like David is basically saying something that he was uh, holding on to some type of uh, 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 perfection or something. But that's not what he's saying. David is saying, I'm going to get kicked in the teeth. I'm going to get down. I'm going to try to keep the commandments. I'm going to get kicked in the teeth. I'm going to sin. I am going to go back to the commandments. And you can, if you have to read around this verse and see what other verses are orbiting around it, and what David is saying is what everything happens in my life, it might take weeks. It might take days. It might take months. But I'm going back to the testimonies of God because they will keep me on track. Lisa. Right. And right. Right. It's a GPS. That's a great point. It's a GPS. You're going to drive from here to California tomorrow. You decide you want to go out there and you want to see all the sites. Are you going to sit there and you're going to guarantee anybody that you know or me or whatever and you're going to get in that car and you are going to drive perfectly to the west coast and never hit a bad road or never take a wrong exit or you're never going to hit a back road or something or get caught in traffic or in some area where you're lost? You ever, you, can you guarantee that that's going to happen? It's the same thing of this roadmap for life. What David is saying is when I take that beltway, I am going to definitely probably get off onto some wrong exits and I'm going to have a bad time. But I am going to use this as my GPS and it's going to bring me back to the interstate I need to be to get where I need to go. And of course, that interstate for us is heaven. It's heavenly. But it's not, we're not going to be perfect. 
And that's not an excuse for us to not be perfect and to try out sins just to tempt the Lord and to see if he means what he says is. We're going, to, we're going to fail. And that's what David was saying. He said, I am going to fail. And he's writing this to tell other people, you can do this. You can handle this. And you can do it by the word of the Lord. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. I went back to thy word. And then he comes back and he tells one of his biggest dilemmas. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. That'll bring you down when everyone else around you hates the Lord and they mock you, laugh at you. He says, the bands of the wicked. This happened all throughout his life. Even when he was going to the very first war that he was facing with Goliath, his own brother, what was it, Elihu? Was that his name? I think it was Elihu. He mocked his brother. He mocked David. And he goes, what do you think you're doing? And even Saul was questioning him. He's like, you can't do this. You're going to have to take this 100 pounds of metal and you're going to have to put it on your arm and you're going to go, if you're going to do this, first you told him not to do it and then he comes in and he goes, well, if you're going to do it, you better. David said, no, I have the whole armor of God and I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this. And, all. and he, people fought him most of his life. Saul, probably one of his biggest nemesis, who at many times, David could have killed him. Many times he could have killed him and he never did. And he says... And I believe that's part of who he's talking about. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. Enemies against David. Saul had stolen from David on his tearing through the kingdom to kill David. Absalom ransacked David's palace. The Amalekites rifled Ziklag, took David's wives, and Ahinoam and Abigail took their sons. He took their sons, daughters, and their cities were burned. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And that was in Samuel. Lisa. That's right. Right. That's right. So in other words, what you're saying is he's owning his sin, right? Against thee, thee alone, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. That's what David says in Psalm 51. That's a very good point Lisa brings up. Because I was shapen, he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin, and my mother conceived me. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. We live in a very bad day and age where people are victimized by their sin. That they're, they say that they're victimized by it, but they're not responsible for it. That's the problem. And that's what happens in a lot of these self-help places. You've seen it. If you watch these interventions or any of these shows or if you've read the 12-step process and all, basically some of the things that they say are very, very good. Alcohol, anonymous, anonymous drug rehabilitation places... 
But for the most part, the tenor or the attitude that comes out of there is that I'm a victim of that sin. It grabbed me, but they don't own the sin. If you don't own your sin and you do, then how can you repent of it if you don't own it? Lisa. Right. You know, and I'm really sorry I offended you. It was, well, we're, you know, this is our, the way we are as, you know, this particular occupation. You know, making excuses for why you did what you did. Um, and, and you invite, you know, that's, that's just like Adam and Eve, what they did in the garden, hiding from God, you know, not owning what they've done. They didn't want to own up to what they had done in the garden. Right. is weak. That's incredible because that's a very good uh, parable that the Lord gave. I was, I'm thinking about it. Lisey. Yes. It's God's fault. He gave me that extra Y or, or X chromosome. It's not true. It's not true. You know, I'm thinking about the publican and the Pharisee. That's what I'm thinking about, what Lisa's talking about, and the publican sits here, because I'm not even worthy to even be present before the Lord. I can't even talk to you, Lord. I can't even, I am so wicked, I can't even face thee. That is a contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh Lord, I will not despise. Psalm 51, I think it's verse 13, I think. The sack, he says, with David comes back and he says in Psalm 51, all the bullocks, the perfect little calves, everything I could sacrifice means nothing unless I have a broken and contrite spirit. And that's what, that's what David's saying here. And he's, I love this because basically I might be standing here talking, but I really feel like I'm sitting out there with you and David standing here because he's the one teaching us thousands of years later. And what a brilliant man that he was. And he's teaching us that we need to own our sin. And what Lisa's talking about is an actual event that happened this past week where a young man used some very horrible language. He did come back and it took a while to apologize, but he said some horrible things, but his, he had an excuse. He said that I work on a farm and everybody talks that way, and so you have to understand it. Well, my response to anybody is I work in the construction industry, and there's nobody that has worse, worse language than construction guys. I don't think there are. Maybe there are. But that doesn't give us the, the reason to go out and speak like that and act like it's okay. 
You're going to get angry and say something? It's going to happen. But do you feel bad about it and you're willing to repent and at least try to stop it? I mean, at the very least, instead of letting it be a, letting it fester. And this happened, I mean, I saw it in my own growing up with my own brother. You know the story of my brother. And the problem is, I, I went into jail many times and visited with him, and he always was saying he was a victim of what happened. And I was always telling him, well, the substances did not get up and grow feet and walk up to you and knock on your leg and say, can I come into your body? Something, you had to do something to do that. And this is where we have to own our sins because therein lies the joy. When you repent, the Lord will lift that from your soul. He'll lift it from your heart and He will give you that, that joy unspeakable. Lisey. Yes. Right. Right. I, and I think that's such a blessing to all of us here, an encouragement. My whole heart, David's not leaving anything out. I think it's a good standard. Lisa? Right. Right. That's right. Amen. Right. Right. But what can you accept when someone wrongs you if they give you one or two responses? Well, I own that. I mean, I, I don't, I, no, I do not own that sin. I'm a victim of it, and I'm sorry, but it, you know, I'm sorry that it offended you, but I'm not going to stop it. Or if they say to you, I'm really sorry, and I don't know that I can do this right away, but I'm going to try. It might take some time. What makes you feel like working with someone more? Think about that. Matt. Yeah, excuses, and there are a lot of them. That's a good point. Lisey. Mm. Right. Right. But that's the whole point. That's, and that's, that, that brings it together because of like what we were talking about Wednesday evening regarding re, basically generalized evangelism and religion are a way of hedging your bets to not miss heaven on a technicality, which is a sure way to lose heaven. But when you're talking about, you're talking about these things, being victimized and having all these problems, when you own the sin 
then the Lord frees you. At least he's talking about she brings up the word guilt. You can go to all the church services that you want where you're being self-medicated and told that you're a good person. You can have all the prosperity messages and all of the Bible verses being extra, or taken out of Scripture that really is what we need to hit home. But there's one thing you're never going to do. You're never going to erase the word guilt from the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. It's there. And a lot of people die because of it. The people live with guilt and they don't know what to do with it because they haven't been taught. And one of the greatest teachings that I ever heard about guilt has been from three different pastors, and they're saying, you've got to deal with it, and you have to deal with it, and you can't do it without the blood of Jesus Christ. And also, I love you stand on this pulpit. you got Scripture behind you, you have Scripture in front of you, and you have it right there, and you're standing in the middle of it, and that's what you want to be surrounded with, what David is teaching us here about the testimonies of the Lord and His commandments. That's what you do with your guilt. You go there, the Lord will break your heart, He will calm you down, He will give you humility inside of your heart, and then you now will have power that most people never even will even understand. And that power is being able to approach somebody and fix things without carrying this horrible weight on your shoulders always of contentment and bitterness. I think that's incredible. And David is teaching us here where to go with that guilt. He talks about his enemies. He prayed in verse 62. I love this. He says, At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee. Remember what we were talking about earlier about prayer? He didn't care what time it was. Seven times daily, David said, I went to the Lord. Seven times. He couldn't stop. He was intoxicated with prayer. You want to be addicted to something? Get addicted to prayer. All right? And you will never have to find a prayer aholics anonymous. You'll never have to go to that. You will love being addicted to prayer. David says, even at midnight, I got up and I rose and I gave thanks because of thy righteous judgment. I loved it. I prayed at midnight. Public worship does not excuse us of private worship. We, we, we see that how, how Christ says we need to get alone and pray. We just saw that in Matthew 6, 6. But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And we see here, we pray for everything in our lives. There's nothing that we should hold back. Be nice. It's interesting to get close to David, who was such a wonderful king. And he prayed. He discusses the scripture. And we love that. You know, he gets up in the middle of the night here and he worships the Lord. You know, that is a great time to approach the Lord. A lot of times in the middle of the night, that's when you can be at the most vulnerable. Lisa. Right? Right? You know, I think we've arrived a little bit. If we're really struggling and then after it, the Lord makes us feel good in our hearts and we can give thanks. Isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> Lisa. <coughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's many, many wonderful steps. Absolutely. And well, here's another one. Pray at night. Get up and you're having a pray at night. Matthew. Yeah. 
Right. 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 Amen. That's right. Right. And then what did the Lord tell Satan in the wilderness? Tempt not the Lord thy God. Well, I've, I've talked to uh, several people in my lifetime that say, well, I struggle with things, but I can't find them anywhere in the Bible. They're there. It's there. And that, that's a very good point. You, that is, that, I didn't cut you off that I meant... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. Just open that door and crack it open. Look what can happen. Amen. That's right. We stay close to the Lord, and the Lord will, will keep us on that path. Amen. Well, David, one of the ways David did that was getting up in the middle of the night, and he worships the Lord. And this is a great time to approach the Lord. It's a humbling time, and we can be most weak and vulnerable. And David showed great thankfulness. We see in Daniel chapter 2, verse 23, that we read, I thank thee and praise thee, O God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. And this is when Daniel was praying. Daniel would pray, and the Lord opened up to him all of the hardships that were coming up against him. And he prayed down in the lion's den. He was down there, and the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. And then when he was told by the presidents, 30 days, you're not allowed to worship your God. What did Daniel do? Oh, okay. You know, Governor Hogan said to shut my door. I'm going to shut the door of my house in Jerusalem. I, 30 days, I, could just, I can just put God on the shelf for 30 days, and then I'll just keep out from under of getting in any kind of trouble. And I, I, and I can, you know, everybody around me, I'll protect them too, because I'm a good guy. I'm going to protect them too, because I'm Superman. And I'm going to shut my doors. No, he opened his windows and his doors wide open and prayed thrice daily. And for Daniel to play, pray thrice daily, probably was half a day for him. He gets started praying according to reading. You read about him, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And he prayed, and what did he do? They got him. <laughs> they, they pulled him out, and they put him in the lion's den, and as bad as it could get, he went all the way down in the pit. The Lord shut the mouth of the lions. So the Lord could pretty much do anything. So... Anyway, I wanted to get into the confession this morning. I think I'll wait till the next session that we meet for Sunday school. We'll go into that. There's a couple more tenets about Scripture. But then we see here in verses 63 and 64, I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. There's another word for his word, statutes. We see precepts, statutes, very good words to remember. David here loves to be with those that love the Lord. We just talked about what it would be like to be a friend of David, to discuss the Lord and to pray with him. He would have loved that. He loves those. David loved those that love the Lord. Psalm 15, 4, In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. 
David says he honors them, those that fear the Lord he honors. And in verse 64, the earth is full of his mercies. Psalm 103, 9, He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed himself. And David says, The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, earlier on in that. And so this is what David is teaching us about the precepts, the statutes, righteous judgments, his commandments. This is where we go for our help. And let's finish with prayer this morning. Matthew, could you close us this morning? Thank you.